Well, good evening and uh, a very, very warm welcome here to St Paul's and to this Institute event. Uh, my name is Mark Oakley. I'm one of the interim directors of the St Paul's Institute. This event entitled, uh, What is Money and Does It Matter? And uh, not only am I delighted to be able to welcome you this evening, but I'm delighted to be able to welcome Felix Martin as the main speaker this evening, following his recently published and, I have to say, best-selling Money, the Unauthorised Biography. I'm also delighted to welcome Bishop Peter Selby, who's one of our interim directors of the Institute as well, part of the home team, and uh, who will offer a theological response to Felix's presentation before we then open it up uh, on the floor for questions and comments. I've known Felix personally for a number of years and such is the humility of his mind that I never knew that this book was even being written. Uh, He's a a macroeconomist and bond investor educated in classics, international relations and of course economics. Between 1998 and 2009, he worked at the World Bank, mostly on the reconstruction of the former Yugoslavia, and helped establish the European Stability Initiative think tank. Since 2008, he has worked on the fund management industry in London, first at Thames River Capital, and since 2013 as a partner and economist in the global credit division of Lion Trust Asset Management. Felix is an associate of the Institute for New Economic Thinking in New York and of the Centre for Global Studies in London, and his writing has appeared in various publications, including the New York Review of Books, the Financial Times, and the New Statesman. Money, the unauthorised biography, was published in June last year, and it's his first book and is, according to The Economist, surprisingly entertaining. It's also, says the New Statesman, um, important in its fresh understanding. And in fact, all the reviews across the board uh, agreed that this book is stimulating, intelligent, accessible, and most important, timely. Well, this evening, Felix takes up its theme. What is money and does it matter? And would you please therefore welcome Felix Martin. Thank you very much indeed, Mark, and thank you to Robert and, and, and to Peter, and thank you in particular all of you for coming, because um, I know it's you know, very, very difficult to get around at the moment, um, and I quite understand if some of you have just thought that you, know, you might as well come and listen to this drivel rather than be crammed into a tube or a bus, uh, you'll probably get home at the same time anyway, whether you leave now or in an hour. Uh, I should also apologise, you can probably hear from my voice, I pretty much lost my voice yesterday, so um, seems to have come back. I hope you'll think that's a good thing by the end of this talk. So I'm going to talk about these two questions. <clears throat> what is money and why does it matter? And I don't mean why does money matter, that's obvious to all of us. Um, I mean why, why does it matter to ask the question, what is money? And I, I take a historical approach to this, um, but I want to start with a very contemporary phenomenon, one which I hope that uh, some of you will have come across, and it's this, Bitcoin. And for those of you who don't know, Bitcoin is a new electronic uh, currency, an electronic money, 
Um, it's all the rage at the moment. Um, it is uh, not issued by any state. It's a purely private enterprise. And it has no physical presence at all, despite that little uh, coin icon up there. It only exists as a ledger uh, distributed amongst computers uh, all over the internet. Um, and it's been a lot in the news recently because of these chaps, who you might also know from the film The Social Network. These are the Winklevoss twins, uh, two of the very, uh, well, they claim to be the, the people who'd innovated Facebook along with Mark Zuckerberg. Um, and then there was a subject of a legal dispute, if you saw the film, but they've since become entrepreneurial investors and they've taken up very much, along with other people in Silicon Valley, the cause of Bitcoin. They think it's the future of money. It's a tremendously interesting private innovation which will steamroller all the official sovereign currencies and the official banking sector that we use today and all be swept away by this marvellous new invention. It is a new, it is an interesting invention, by the way, Bitcoin, in my view. However, I think one can learn a lot about what money really is by thinking a bit about Bitcoin and about the claims of its advocates, because these claims are, in a couple of important respects, uh, wrong. The first important claim that the advocates of Bitcoin make is that it's the world's first virtual money. And um, when they make that claim, they're thinking of uh, what I would call the conventional history of money, which is the way that most of us are brought up to think about uh, how, what money is and how it came into being. And that conventional story, um, I'll summarize it briefly, goes something like this. In the beginning, there was no money. I mean, back in primitive times, you know, there was no such thing. Um, there was just barter. In other words, you know, I produced, as it were, fish, and you produced corn. And if we wanted to exchange things, then uh, I would give you some fish and you would give me some corn. And, of course, this is very inefficient because you have to want exactly what I've got and I have to want exactly what you've got, and we have to want them both at the same time. It's what we call a double coincidence of wants in economics. But nevertheless, this was the only way of doing things in those primitive ages. And then, sooner or later, some clever person thought of an idea. Why don't we choose one thing um, which nobody would want you know, for itself, uh, but you'd want it because it could be exchanged for other things. That thing would be a so-called medium of exchange. And in principle, that could be absolutely anything. And indeed, you know, if you look back over monetary history, all kinds of funny things have been used as money, uh, salt in Abyssinia, and fish, in fact, fish itself, and Newfoundland, you know, used as money. But usually, of course, uh, it was precious metals, you know, because they have very desirable properties. They're malleable, uh, they're portable, uh, you can have a small amount of them, which is valuable, and so on. And by stamping things on them, you can make sure they can't be counterfeited, and so on. And that was the invention of money, basically. That, that was it. And then there's another stage, which is that um, a bit later than that, uh, someone came up with another good idea, which was, you know, we could lend and borrow this money stuff, this medium of exchange. Um, that was the invention of credit. And even later again, institutions grew up which specialised in this uh, borrowing and lending of this medium of exchange, and so specialised in building these superstructures of credit on top of this money stuff, and that was the invention of banks. Um, and it, this is a very plausible story of the bank, not a perfect example, I grant you. 
And it's a very plausible story, and it's a story that you find throughout the conventional literature on the history of money. It's in Smith, and it's in Locke, and so on. It's in all the sort of usual economics textbooks you'll find. And I even found the other day, it's in a very authoritative source indeed, uh, with my young daughter, How Things Began, famous husband. Here it is, story of money there, as you can see. Starts with barter, choose anything you like to be the medium of exchange. Sooner or later, someone comes up with coinage because it's got the best properties. And then over there on the right-hand side is banking. You know, people take it to goldsmiths and so on and so forth. But there's a problem with this story. And the problem is that real historians, not economists like me, but real historians and uh, anthropologists and so on, have always known that this is historically inaccurate. It's not true that this is how money evolved. And it's not the experience when we've been to so-called primitive societies and seen uh, them that that's how money uh, is in use there. Um, and it's not logically true either. It doesn't reflect actually what money is and how it works in the real world. And to explain a bit about why, I want to take a detour. Um, it's a big detour to this place, Yap. It's an island in the, in the Caroline uh, Islands in the Pacific. And this is an island which was pretty much untouched by uh, civilization outside of Micronesia until the earliest 20th century. Um, when in 1903, it was visited by an American anthropologist, um, a young chap called William Henry Furness III. And he'd made some previous expeditions to Borneo, and he went to Yap. He wanted to see what it was like, investigate the culture and society and so on. And he expected this would be a very primitive place. It's a tiny little island. You can walk across it in a day. Uh, it's only got three commodities to speak of. Uh, there's fish, there's coconuts, and there's beche de mer, sea cucumber. That's the, the luxury. And he was expecting to find a very sort of simple society. And in fact, he found, as, as anthropologists often do, quite a complex society. It had uh, fishing and fighting fraternities. It had uh, you know, very elaborate mythology. Um, and it have a, had a slave class and an elite class, even though it was a tiny little island. But the most remarkable thing of all about this island of Yap was its monetary system. I mean, you would have thought that with only three commodities, surely barter would suffice in this place. Maybe not even barter, maybe not even that. But no, it had quite a complex monetary system. And it was impossible not to notice this monetary system because its coinage consisted of these enormous limestone disks like this, which were in fact quarried on an island quite a long way away from Yap and then brought to Yap one by one. And Furness, the anthropologist, you know, he was very puzzled by this. Uh, you know, he, he was brought up in this conventional way of thinking about money, and it didn't really fit in. I mean, as a medium of exchange, enormous limestone disks are about the last thing you would choose. Um, in fact, you know, as one often does, he tried to adapt his thinking to this. He thought that maybe it was because they were not portable that they'd been chosen as a medium of exchange. He said, you know, when it takes five strong men to steal the price of a pig, then burglary cannot but be disheartening. But then he noticed that, you know, these things were never really moved around. They weren't much exchanged anyway. In fact, what happened was that the people of Yap would go about their business and trade with one another, and in the course of that trade, they would accumulate credits and debts, and then they would just offset these against one another. And occasionally, at the end of a month or at the end of a few months, 
uh, if the need was felt and there was an outstanding balance, um, this could be liquidated by actually transferring one of these stones. But in general, they didn't move at all. And in fact, he heard this story from his local guide about one particularly large and valuable version of these stones which had fallen overboard in transit from the island where it had been quarried. And despite the fact that it had been lying for several generations on the sea floor, its value nevertheless accrued to the family that owned it. And nobody questioned the wealth of this family, and they'd been able to use it and spend it for years and years and years. So here's this funny story about this picturesque place and its strange monetary system. Um, and you may think, well, you know, it's good for colour in histories of money, but not much else. Um, and I think that's the way it would have stayed had the book that Furness not written come to the attention of the editors of the Economic Journal, the leading uh, economics uh, academic journal of the day in 1910, and they passed it on to a young Cambridge Don who had been uh, seconded by the time they passed it on, it was a couple of years later, to the Treasury on war duty, and that Cambridge Don was this fellow, John Maynard Keynes. And Keynes was astonished when he read um, this account. Um, and he said this. I won't read it out. You can read it up there. He was enormously impressed by this. Why was he so impressed by these people? It was because he felt that these people of Yap had a remarkably clear understanding of the nature of money. They understood that the tokens that we use, which could be coins, they could be checks, they could be, as they are today, simply bits that appear on computer screens telling us how much money we've got in our bank account and so on. These things are not money. It's what they represent which is money. And what they represent is a system of credit and clearing that enables us to transact with one another. Money, in other words, is really a set of ideas. And this is something which the people of Yap saw much more clearly than the Western Europeans or the Americans of Keynes's day who were fixated on the idea that gold, for example, was money under the gold standard. And when I say, and when, when he was talking about this, that money is a set of ideas, I don't mean that in a sort of woolly way. I think one can pinpoint three very important ideas which make up money and which are worth thinking about all the time. The first idea is the concept of economic value, universal economic value. It's a kind of value that you can apply to anything. Obviously, we use lots of categories and concepts of value in our daily lives. We use aesthetic value and uh, religious value and so on. But this is a peculiar kind of value which can be applied to absolutely anything. It can be applied to goods and services. It can be applied to time when we're charging interest. Uh, it can be applied to human lives when the government does its cost-benefit analysis and so on. So this is the first core idea, the idea of universal economic value. It has not always existed. You know, it was at, at a certain point invented in history. The second important set of ideas is a system of accounting for credits and debts, uh, accounting for that uh, economic value. And this is where this notion of value differs from things like aesthetic value or religious value. It can be enumerated. It has a standard unit in a way which those other concepts don't have, that standard unit, the dollar, the pound, the euro, and so on. The third thing 
Uh, because once you've got those first two, you can have the institution of credit and debt, but not necessarily the institution of money. The third thing is the principle of transferability of credit and debt, so that I can use the credit that I have against you to pay some third party, and one needs a technology to be able to operationalize that, and that's where something like coinage or any of these other ways of representing money come in. They are technologies to operationalize that principle of the transferability of debts. So all this is just to say that this first claim, that Bitcoin is the world's first virtual money, is not so. In fact, all money is virtual. It always has been, because money is just a set of ideas. It doesn't matter what the tokens are. Here's good old pound coin today, um, it's what they represent which is important. Now these advocates of Bitcoin make a second claim. Yeah, all right. You know, maybe you're right, maybe it's true that uh, we're not the world's first uh, virtual money. But, obviously, all money today essentially is, is issued by the state. Right? And the state has a very important role in it, but this is where we're different because Bitcoin doesn't have anything to do with the state. So Bitcoin is the world's first private money. Now this also is not the case. If you had opened your newspaper in Ireland on May the 4th, 1970, you would have seen this rather alarming notice. It looks rather familiar to us today, of course, uh, but it was alarming back then. Closure of banks and then a list of all the main clearing banks in the Republic of Ireland at the time. What had happened was there was an industrial dispute between the people who worked in the banks and the owners and managers of the banks over pay. It was not uncommon at that time. There was high inflation and wages were not keeping up with uh, inflation and you know, they had been unable to resolve this through discussions and it had come to a strike. And as a result, uh, the entire banking sector essentially, of what was then one of the world's largest 30 economies, a developed economy, shut down overnight. And it stayed shut uh, in the event for about six months. And when this happened, uh, people were full of the most catastrophic predictions, as I think we would be today. I mean, they said this is going to be a disaster. Uh, people can't access any of their current accounts. That means that the greater part of the money supply which is simply deposits held at banks, which is paid these days by electronic transfers. In those days, of course, it was mainly by cheque. You know, that whole system would collapse overnight. Couldn't, couldn't be done. And so even though people use more cash and coins in those days than they do today, today it's only about 3% of the money supply, which is in cash and coins. Back then it was uh, more like a third. But all the rest of it, the majority of it, just wouldn't work anymore. So people were terrified and thought this would be a disaster. But they were very pleasantly surprised because, uh, to everyone's amazement, commerce and trade actually continued pretty well. The way it continued was that the market improvised its own money. And the way they did it was by the circulation of private IOUs. So a lot of this was just the usual old checks, but of course the checks couldn't be cleared at the end of the day or at the end of the week. You couldn't send them into the bank for clearing. Um, and people would just write IOUs, individuals. And uh, the way this would work, there were certain nodes on the network where all these things would be collected in, and there was a sort of unofficial clearing system, a sort of ersatz banking 
sector, and in fact, um, to people's uh, to people's humour, an important part of this system, as you may be unsurprised to hear in Ireland, was the pub for individuals, at any rate. As uh, an analyst that uh, that wrote a lot about this at the time said, you do not, after all, serve drink to someone for 20 years without knowing something of their liquid resources. So this enabled people uh, who owned pubs to tell whose private IOUs were creditworthy and whose weren't. And the extraordinary thing is that when the Central Bank of Ireland did its review of this uh, after after the event when the banks had reopened again, it turned out the economy uh, had you know not not certainly not shrunk; it had in fact continued growing during that period. And it's a strange, it's an unusual. Um, thing to happen. It hasn't often happened that the entire banking sector shuts down like that. But the phenomenon of private monies on quite a large scale, even, is actually not unusual at all in monetary history. Now, this is an example where the government, who was siding, by the way, with the owners and managers of the banks, was quite keen to encourage this system of private money. They wanted, of course, economic activity to continue. Um, and so they made efforts to facilitate that. Very often it's the opposite. A good example of that would be in Argentina in 2002. Uh, you may remember they had a big crisis uh, over the winter of 2001 to 2. They had previously pegged their currency to the dollar. That had become unsustainable. And eventually they were forced into a big devaluation. And in order to prevent people uh, taking all their pesos out of the banking system, converting them to dollars, and exacerbating the problems uh, for the currency, they imposed a very controversial regulation, which is quite common in such circumstances, whereby the government said that people were not permitted to take deposits out of their banks, the so-called Coralito. Um, and the idea of that is to make liquidity very tight, it's to make it difficult for people to get hold of the official currency. The response of the economy um, was, again, to improvise its own monies, whether it was provincial governments down here in the left-hand corner. This is a, a currency issued by a provincial government at the time. Or just individuals. Uh, up there in the top right-hand corner is a private money that was issued by, uh, there were so-called barter clubs, not barter clubs, actually. They had their own monies, as you can see. This one had its unit of denomination, a creditor. So this was an example where private monies were being created in order to escape from what the government wanted. The government wanted to impose a tight monetary policy, and these people were improvising private monies to escape from a tight monetary policy, unlike the Irish example, whereby the government was positively encouraging them to create private monies. It's a phenomenon which I call the monetary maquis, after the, the maquis in the, in the Second World War, you know, the French resistance, as they were nicknamed, the maquis. Um, because most often, in this second case, it is people who want to escape from the government's monetary policy for one reason or another, and they create their own private monies. And here's, here's a set of, there are many, many examples from all over the world. Here's our own Brixton Pound, there's a couple of them, the one Brixton Pound and ten Brixton Pound, the Lewis Pound in the bottom left-hand corner, from Ithaca, New York State. Uh, there's a private money that uh, is over there. Its denomination is the, uh, the hour, the Ithaca hour. And down in the bottom right-hand corner, a script money issued in the Great Depression, again, to escape from the government's official tight money policies. So it's a very 
old, consistent and important feature of monetary history. So Bitcoin is not the world's first private money either. In fact, private monies are quite literally as old as finance itself, and I, I mean quite literally, that at the bottom is in fact the oldest coin uh, in existence. It's an electrum coin from Lydia, it's from the sort of 7th century BC, and it is inscribed with the name of a private person, Fanny's. So if that uh, sort of conventional story of money on which those claims of Bitcoin advocates, and we'll come back to Bitcoin, uh, were based isn't true, then what's the real story of money? I shall have to rush through it because we, we haven't got much time, but, uh, but please consult the book or other books uh, if you want to know more. Um, I shall try and rattle through it very, very briefly. The real history of money uh, pivots around two questions. These are really the two most important questions about money. The first is a deceptively simple question. What is a pound? What is a dollar? What is a euro? What is a yen? I don't mean a pound coin or a dollar bill and so on. That's obvious. But what is a pound itself? Um, now, if money is a set of ideas, it's a system of transferable credit, um, then the answer to that is actually something very simple. Money, uh, a pound is simply a unit of measurement. It's a unit of measurement on this scale of abstract economic value. And as you can see from this poster, which is a French revolutionary poster, this is from 1795, and it's a poster that was sent around France when they were introducing a new system of, of weights and measures, the metric system, yeah, that's a great inheritance of the French Revolution. Uh, they understood this perfectly well. You can see here, uh, it's a, a variety of demonstrations of these new measures. So up in the top left-hand corner, for example, he's showing you how to use the litre, which is the new metric measure instead of the pint, which is the old royal measure. Um, or up in the top right-hand corner, uh, he's showing you how to use the meter uh, instead of the old royal measurement for length. And there, in the middle at the bottom, you can see is someone showing you how to use the franc, which is the new unit of measurement of monetary value, of economic value, instead of the livre tournois, which was the old royal measure. So that's what money is, uh, sorry, that's what a pound is. It's the standard unit for economic value. And the second question, which is crucial, and the crucial pivot of monetary history, is then who gets to decide what this standard unit is? So if we go back to the world before money, there was a world before money, there was a world before this set of ideas had been invented. There was a world before the idea of economic value had been invented. Um, in fact, it's uh, a world, if we want to go back to the beginning, so far as we know, uh, before the invention of money in the ancient world. But we had a sort of dark ages in Europe where a lot of these ideas went out of fashion and were then rediscovered. So I'll start with just the sort of um, medieval European experience. In the world before money, what people did, um, their life, what they produced, and how things were distributed, and how they exchanged things with one another, 
was not organized by the idea of economic value and it wasn't organized by money and markets. Obviously it was organized in quite a different way and um, it's a way that's sort of summarized very bluntly here by seen from Monty Python's um, Holy Grail, as you can see, underlying basically the way that things were organized uh, was not money and economic value, but violence. It was a feudal system. If you were born the king, you remained the king. If you were born the peasant, you remained the peasant. And there was no way that you could go from becoming the peasant to the king. But with the invention of money, that all began to change. There was another axis on which people could compare themselves to one another, another axis on which to measure social worth, and this was the axis of monetary wealth, economic value. And so we came to the age of sovereign money. Um, with the first invention of money, it was very much dominated by money issued by sovereigns and used by them for their purposes, uh, mainly for the payment of mercenaries and the waging of wars, and it was uh, then useful for people to pay their taxes. And the question of the standard, that first question, which I said was the pivot of monetary history, immediately became very important. Obviously, a sovereign would like to have a standard that suits them, and in practice what that meant was issuing money to pay for uh, whatever extravagant military campaigns or luxuries uh, they would like to have. And this could be easily done in those days. The standard technology for representing money then was, of course, coinage. Um, and it was easy to have an inflationary policy and it was very easy to impose taxes on people. And one way that could be done is shown here. You have a medieval coin. Most medieval coins don't have the denomination of the coin on them. The denomination of the coin was established by ordinances, it was announced, and it was therefore very easy to issue a new ordinance which would say, uh, you know, the coin that you have in your pocket is not good enough to pay all your taxes for this year. I'm afraid to say it's only all good enough to pay half the taxes you owe me this year, and that is the equivalent of imposing a one-off wealth tax on the population, a sudden devaluation, if you like, of the pound or a revaluation of the nominal pound and a devaluation of the coin. So that was a standard that was fit for sovereigns. Obviously it didn't suit their populations very much. You know, you don't want to have uh, money the value of which can change around at the whim of the sovereign. And as uh, commerce grew and wealth accumulated to other classes in Europe in the course of the Middle Ages, people wised up to this. Uh, but there was not much they could do about it. I mean, they could have little private monies like you can today. They could have their own version of the Brixton Pound and so on. Uh, they couldn't mint coinage. That would have been illegal in those days, but they could have kept track of it in some other way. But it would have had the same limitations as those private monies today. Until, that is, the rediscovery of a very important invention, uh, which had already been invented in the ancient world, in the course, roughly speaking, in its, in its mature form in the 16th century in Europe, and that invention was the bank. The origin of banks is not that one that was in that uh, Osborne Howthing's work. It's got nothing to do with the depositing of gold coins with goldsmiths and so on. It has to do with European trade and the realization by pan-European merchants that they didn't need to put up with sovereign money anymore. They could have 
their own version of the bricks and pound, as it were, amongst themselves. They could accumulate credits and debts against one another in the course of pan-European trade, and they could meet quarterly at the great fairs that were held at Lyon and Champagne earlier on and Antwerp, and they could offset these against one another. They had their own unit of account, uh, much like Bitcoin today. Uh, that was the Ecu de Marc. And so they found a way of operating private money on a pan-European scale. Bank money, just like we have it today, effectively. So money became, in other words, not a tool of the sovereign with which to abuse their populations, but a tool against the sovereign, a tool to escape from the sovereign's authority, effectively. It was the monetary machine. <coughs> now, that was a rather unstable monetary situation, as you can imagine. Sovereigns didn't like that, tried to crack down on it. They became very scared of it, didn't understand how it worked. Um, it's the origins, by the way, of uh, all the finickety, you know, um, difficultness of understanding finance. I mean, financiers love to make finance very difficult so that people can't understand it, and they never loved it more than at this period of history where they were constantly trying to make sure that um, the court and the king couldn't understand what they were doing. But nevertheless, it was a very unstable disequilibrium, um, which found its resolution effectively at the end of the 17th century with what I would call the Great Monetary Settlement, uh, which uh, happened for the first time effectively here in England uh, with the foundation of the Bank of England. And what this was, was a major settlement between a sovereign and the bankers, a quid pro quo, where the sovereign agreed to endorse the private money that was produced by these bankers and thereby allow it to break the bounds of the small circle of merchants in, you know, who's, uh, where, where it had previously circulated, allowed through his endorsement and his authority it to circulate as sovereign money does all throughout his land. And in return, uh, his public finances in those days were put on a much better footing the uh, Bank of England, as it, as it was then, agreed to uh, fund the public debt. It's the origin of the monetary system we have today, where almost all the money in circulation are the liabilities of private banks, but they have the endorsement of the sovereign government, which of course today is a democratic government. So you're probably asking, well, you know, so what? Um, there's, there's the story, um, there's the real history of money, but you know, what does that mean today? Well, the answer, I think, uh, is summarised by this chap. This is Russell Brand, probably don't need to tell you that. Um, you may remember a couple of months ago, he caused a great storm by telling Jeremy Paxman that you know, uh, we're ripe for a revolution, um, and the way things are run now, and especially the way we run things economically, is very unsatisfactory, and finance is unsatisfactory, as proved by the fact we had this enormous crisis, and then you know, the very guys that got us into the crisis all got bailed out, and so on and so forth. But more seriously, I mean, much more seriously, and many people here in the audience and, uh, will, will know this, uh, it's a sign of something much more, much more serious uh, and a genuine problem that we have at the moment, which is that we did have a huge financial crisis caused by something obviously going wrong in the financial system, something went wrong with money, and there are a lot of people very justifiably unhappy about it. 
So the reason why I think it's very important to understand what money really is and what the history of it is, is that I think it gives very important insights for us to deliver solutions to the problems which people are very, quite rightly, complaining about. Let me go back to these two key questions in monetary history and give you two brief illustrations of what I mean before we can go to some questions and Peter's response. <clears throat> Let me take the second question first. Who gets to decide what the monetary standard is? The essence of the crisis that we just went through uh, was precisely that in the mid-2000s uh, there was the emergence of the creation on an enormous scale of uh, money outside of the regulated banking system. This was the so-called shadow banking system which emerged. And due, I would say, to a, an insufficient understanding on the part of, uh, of orthodox economics of the way that money works and that history of money that I've described, that was not noticed and it was not taken account of by the central banks and the ministries of finance whose job it is to police it. Effectively, there was an enormous breakdown in that great monetary settlement that I described. It was made you know, 300 years ago, and basically the whole thing completely broke down. So that, that quid pro quo became a quid pro nihilo or, you know, from the perspective of the government. And in fact, uh, the bankers were creating a great deal of money and liquidity outside of the regulated system. It is, as I've explained, a very, very old phenomenon. It's just another example of the monetary maquis. I mean, it's, uh, it's great to be able to produce money and have it circulate uh, throughout society. And in return for that, uh, one needs to be regulated. One can't have uh, some private and unregulated group deciding what the monetary standard is, which is essentially what's happening when you have the production of a lot of private money. So what is necessary, clearly, is a new great monetary settlement. Um, and that is what's sort of going on at the moment in the corridors of power. But I'm not sure it should only be going on in the corridors of power. The secondly, take the first question. What actually is a pound? Um, I, sorry, to, just to go back here, I, I said that there was a great insight here from these French revolutionaries and that you can see that they understood that a pound is just a unit of measurement and that's a, an important insight to realise that. What isn't articulated here is the even more important thing about this. There is a difference, a crucial difference, between physical units of measurement and uh, a pound or a dollar or a euro as a unit of measurement. These, uh, the meter and the kilo and so on, these are things that measure the physical world. And the most important thing about those units we know is that they must be consistent throughout time. They should be fixed, they shouldn't change. I mean, that's the whole point of them. It would be completely useless if you went around changing the standard meter every other day. It would cause havoc with architecture and engineering and so on. That's why we have you know, the standard meter, there it is in Paris, and you can always go and check what your meter is. And that's what you need for units of measurement in the physical world. But the social world is different, and it has a different criterion. Whereas in normal times, of course, it's useful um, for a pound to mean the same thing 
at any given time. It's useful to have that consistency through time. But in the social world, the really important uh, criterion is fairness. So uh, it's, uh, if, it's, if I go to my final slide, the important thing for a monetary standard is not for it to be fixed throughout time, fixed, for example, to the value of gold, or even necessarily fixed to the value of a basket of commodities or to an increase in that basket of commodities over time. That's what an inflation um, target is, the sort of thing that we have at the moment. That's not necessarily going to be, at all times, uh, the best thing for a standard unit for uh, economic value. As Keynes was pointing out here, when the burden of debt becomes unsustainable for a society, then the usual rules don't apply. Then it becomes more important to adjust that standard unit and thereby to shift the burden from debtors, uh, from, from debtors to creditors. Uh, to ensure that society continues to be fair, that the distribution of wealth continues to be fair. Um, so it's a crucial difference between units of social measurement and units of physical measurement. And um, I think it's one that one can only appreciate when one understands what money actually is. It's not a question which even arises uh, if you think about money in the conventional way. So I will end there, and I look forward very much to Peter's response. Thank you. Uh, thank you very much, Felix. Uh, bishop Peter Selby was uh, Bishop of Worcester from 1997 to 2007, and has spent much of his life researching issues of international and personal debt. He's the author, for instance, of... Uh, Grace and Mortgage, The Language of Faith and the Debt of the World. And he's currently an interim director of the St. Paul's Institute, and Peter's going to give uh, a short theological response to Felix's presentation, and then we will open up the floor for some uh, questions and conversation. Thank you. Uh, the first thing I'd like to, to do uh, as part of the team of St Paul's Institute is to say what an enormous pleasure and privilege it is really to have Felix come and, and do this for us. Um, uh, I think his book um, has really pricked a bubble, uh, if I can put it that way, because it has really made people think and uh, there's nothing more important that you can get people to do. And so uh, it's, a, it's a pleasure for us. Uh, that, we, that we have the opportunity of thinking with him. Um, I was reminded when uh, you put the map up uh, of, uh, to tell us where Yap was, I was reminded of the, one of the first conversations I had that got me intrigued about money, uh, which was with a nun uh, whom I knew um, uh, who uh, had grown up in the Solomon Islands, uh, which would have been in that picture somewhere, and I, uh, I said to her one day, where, where did you grow up? And there was a big Mercator projection map on the uh, wall. And she 
looked at a microscopic dot in the middle of a patch of blue and said, well, that's where I grew up. And, and I was already starting to be interested in, 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 in money. And I, I said, well, what, you know, what was the life like? And one of the, thing, the first thing I remember her saying is, well, I didn't know anything about money. Uh, we never used it. Um, the first time I used money was when I wanted to leave the island because the ferry company uh, insisted that I had to pay for my ticket, and that was a problem. And as Felix has absolutely rightly said, this is not because people bartered, but because it was a very small and coherent society in which if you needed something from somebody, they would be likely to give it to you as long as you didn't exploit them all the time, and they could come and ask you for things and generally society worked without money and um, uh, so it's absolutely right to say that um, that we didn't actually ever uh, exchange goods for one another in this very para- inefficient kind of way and it's also really important and I think takes us into the theological domain to establish what I think Felix has established beyond doubt, which is that the essence of something being money is that people trust it to be so. Um, If you trust it to be so, then it is. And um, what tends, when things go wrong, it's because trust breaks down and people no longer trust it to do what you would expect money to do. And so I think the first thing um, I wanted to say in response to, the, to, to, to what Felix has said and to his book is that, he's abs- of course, it's absolutely right that we should realise that what we're dealing with is exchanges of trust, transferable debts and credits, as he put it, and, and credits, the word credit, is etymologically uh, linked to the notion of belief and trust. So the whole thing is a great act of trust. And, um, and the problem I have uh, it comes at the next point. Because I did feel, um, even more as Felix was talking than when I read him uh, in print, that there's something delightfully innocent about this substance, which isn't a substance, as he describes it. It looks as though um, it's just a product of ideas. In fact, he describes money as a set of ideas. And ideas uh, uh, sounds like a kind of rather innocent thing, just a a way of thinking about things. And I want to say I don't think in human history money has been as innocent as that. Because the problem about trust, and this is where it gets theological, the problem about trust is that it's an extraordinarily precious but also extraordinarily dangerous act to trust. It's uh, subject to all kinds of abuse. Uh, Leaders get trusted and trusted inappropriately. And as we saw up to in 2008, uh, money got trusted, banks got trusted, 
And then somebody pulled the plug on trust. And uh, I, th I think, and I, I'm much interested in what Felix's take is on the more recent developments, because it does seem to me that the root of the problem lies late in the 20th century when the amount of money exploded because of things like the oil price hike, the technology exploded in, in terms of the speed with which you could move money around. And all this, all this meant that the trust got rather exciting. And that excitement is where it ceases to be innocent. And I think that it's one of the functions of religious faith, uh, as expressed in theological ideas, to ask questions about the things that human beings get excited about. <coughs> to ask questions not because we think it's bad to get excited, but because we know that getting excited about things is dangerous and we know that money has got very specially exciting qualities about it. And that's why um, the Sunday newspapers have very much larger finance sections than they ever did before. That's why people get more and more anxious and therefore excited about what they ought to be doing with their pension pot, if they have one, that people get more and more excited, therefore, about money and having it. And I think that's a, uh, a serious matter, and one which we need, therefore, to reflect about. What is, what is the spirit that is exuded by something once it's called money? Um, and that leads to the question, uh, why, did, uh, why did Jesus decide to call it, to give it a divine, divine name, call it money, mammon? Uh, why is it, therefore, and the answer is because trust gets located in it and an inappropriate level of trust. And it's not too difficult to notice in our contemporary situation who profits from that kind of trust. If you can get people to trust uh, in money, and especially in people who have money, then the likelihood is that they will entrust you with their power. And we live in a society in which the people who have no money uh, are treated increasingly as rubbish and as the locus of that terrifying biblical text that from those who have nothing will be taken away even what they have. And if you want to an, an, an analysis of what's going on uh, in the welfare system, uh, what's going on in the welfare system is that uh, the people who have nothing are having taken away what they don't have because of a belief that some people who have lots of money and have had lots of money know how to put the system right because otherwise they wouldn't have all that money. And so I think arising from this history that is in those, in those pages, arising from this history, is a profound question about whether money is innocent. And if it's not innocent, how we can make its non-innocence clear to ourselves so that we are not continually deceived by the people who have money, and we know they have money because there are lots of numbers on it and they have big numbers,
that we're not deceived by them into thinking that what they're dealing with is a piece of objectivity, just an innocent idea. So that's why I think, alongside what Felix has talked about, the question of money and faith becomes important. Because as a locus of faith, I think money has been disastrously inappropriate. Thank you. Well, thank you both to uh, Felix and to Peter. And now um, I'm going to ask if any of you have questions to ask uh, of Felix or indeed of Peter or comments to make. I'm going to take two at a time. I'm going to ask if you can to be fairly brief uh, so that we can hear as many people as possible. So uh, the hand just there and then the man here. Thank you. Um, thank you. Um, my immediate uh, focus is the current crisis, actually. Uh, looking at history, obviously, we could be there all night and have different interpretations for that matter. Um, quantitative easing, um, you know, given this crisis, I've got the impression that over that we've been through, so it's not over. Uh, we're in the thick of it, and uh, um, it's global. And uh, there's this thing called pot money in the hands of certain people coming in and out of countries and destabilizing them. So the issue I, I, I want to raise, and by the way, that, and the solution by the gatekeepers is austerity, as opposed to criminalizing certain acts and actions. So my question really is um, focusing on the creation and control of the money supply. You didn't mention in the great monetary settlement, who actually set up, for instance, the Bank of England. I think that is a very important question uh, because have we been deceived, for instance? And secondly, what happened in 1913 at Jekyll Island, which led to the creation of the US Federal Reserve? In other words, I'm raising questions about who's actually in control of the so-called state money that you're referring to. Is it a private cartel? Are you asking the right questions? Are we being deceived and suffering for nothing? Okay, thank you. And here? Yeah, thanks to Peter. Um, just when you were describing how people obviously have trust in money and they get excited about the institutions and the people with money who have power, I suddenly thought, oh, you could just as easily be talking about people's faith and how they get excited about that. And I just wondered, in terms of that similarity, whether there's sort of what kind of differences there are, because in both instances, it's a belief system that you may arguably buying into. Okay, thank you. So, can we address the first issue? Yeah. Yes, absolutely. A very, very valid point. And um, of course, in that very brief summary history, um, I was presenting that, that uh, great monetary settlement as uh, you know, some sort of uh, exercise of democratic control or control over you know, the sovereign and what they were doing. 
it was very much of its time, of course. You know, those bankers with whom that great monetary settlement was struck at that time were a tiny, tiny class of vested interests. Um, and you are right to point out that even by 1913, um, those banking representatives who formed the Federal Reserve, for example, were still a tiny, tiny, uh, you know, kind of vested interests. Uh, the reason that I put up, I realized I didn't um, tell you why I had this picture up here. The reason why I put this up here was to say that we, we, we should have in our minds the ideal of democratic control over the monetary system and over the monetary standard. And you're absolutely right that, of course, uh, the sort of indirect democratic control that we exercise via Parliament, via the Treasury, uh, setting various targets for an independent Bank of England and so on, I mean, that may not seem very democratic. It isn't very democratic at the moment. And when you look back at the evolution of the democratic control of money in this public-private system that we have, it goes very much in parallel with the evolution of our representative government. So the reason why it was in 1694 that the Bank of England was established like that was because that's when you know, we had our first introduction of, of uh, Republican government, as it were, or hybrid government here in the UK. Um, and it has evolved with that. What we should be looking forward to, of course, is a fuller kind of democratic control over the monetary system than, that we have now. Clearly it failed. That's obvious. We don't have a humane monetary standard. We don't have very democratic control of the monetary system, and that was demonstrated by the crisis and our response to it, which was very beneficial to a small group of people at the pinnacle of that system. And the reason why I put up this picture, which I forgot to mention, is that this goes back to the very, very beginnings of the invention of money in the Western world, as far as we know. In ancient Greece, Athens was the first fully monetized city-state in ancient Greece. And it appears, we don't know obviously the real origins so far back in time, we're dealing in intellectual history in the ancient world, we don't really know what the origins were, but so far as we can tell, the origins of the institution were not, for example, in the payment of mercenaries and so on by the state, but in this central institution uh, of ancient Athens, which was the sacrifice, where the whole tribe would come together, a sacrifice would be made, and parts of the meat would be distributed in equal part to every member of the tribe. Now, even that wasn't very democratic. Obviously, women weren't involved, and there were slaves and so on. But nevertheless, um, it was, as you know, a direct democracy where every member of the tribe participates. This was the origin, and the original monetary units, the drachma and the obol, uh, again, where they come from these, you know, is a bit lost in the mists of time, but they appear to come from this particular institution uh, and this tradition. They represent uh, the things that you were given uh, in the course of this as a member of the tribe. In other words, the standard unit, the origins of finding a standard unit for this new idea of economic value was ultimately very humane. It was to do with the equal value of every member of the tribe. This is where it came from. And that's the kind of thing we should somehow be aiming for, even in this tremendously complex <coughs> world we live in today. We must remember that, you know, what we're doing when we transact with money 
is we are organizing how people live. You know, we are organizing how citizens live and what they do. And that's what we're doing, and that's therefore what we should be thinking of when we're thinking how much money should be created, by whom, when should it be allowed to you know, run away as, as hot money, and, 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 and so on. Peter, do you have a comment on that? And then if you could just answer this question. Uh, yes, uh, my immediate comment on that is that um, uh, it's really about that picture because, um, of course, for those Greek people today who are demanding to have their drachma back um, have some deep folk memories about all of this. I mean, they, they think they were the cradle of democracy and they don't wish to be run from Brussels or, or Berlin or anywhere else. Um, I think it's really important we've got to the issue of democracy because, um, because democracy uh, depends for its effective working on the desires of the people. And uh, the reason why I'm concerned to bring out the fact that money has a peculiarly exciting quality about it, uh, and it's got more exciting the more of it there's been and the more it dominates our lives. Um, uh, the, the reason why that's important to notice is because it is the biggest uh, tool for subverting democracy if those with power and money can persuade the people that their interests really lie in supporting the strong and the moneyed. Because actually, uh, as, as uh, Felix I just very, very powerfully just said, it actually, if it, it if money and democracy were actually about the equal value of every member of the tribe, then getting people really excited about money is a very good way of transforming the society into one that's run by a very powerful elite with money. Do you, do you like to pick up this man's question to you about... Do you want to just reiterate what you, what you asked? Um, yeah, I was just sort of struck by... <coughs> Where you described how people um, yeah, get excited about money and then ascribe all these sort of, all this trust in the people that, that own it, and you are obviously taking quite a critical view of that. But you could take I would argue that you could take the same view of um, organised religion. I just wondered what you think about that. Um, well, what I think about it is that um, there was a time when religion was extremely dangerous because, because it was a, the subject of enormous corporate, the, mo the biggest subject of corporate excitement. I think it's been largely replaced by money, but occasionally we find that in, in, in the terrible uh, things that happen when r religious people divide among themselves, that it is still capable of arousing immense passions. But my point would be that the increase in the amount and powerfulness of money has transformed the arena of excitement largely from religion to economics. More questions. Um, so the man in the red top here and then uh, here, here. Thank you. The state creates the format that in this country we call the past 
but only 3% of the pound sterling is created by the state, and the other 97% is coming out of thin air by the factors. And another factor of it is the um, quantitative easing, where they're um, playing big games with the amount of money in circulation. Um, okay. Thank you. And? Okay, so uh, two comments there about the 3% and then what's wrong. Felix. Could I ask that people speak up? We're trying to get very well at the back. Thank you. If you'd just like to reiterate what you're going to address. I'll, I'll answer the second one first and then come to the first okay. one if that's okay, because uh, the, the second question was, you know, what's wrong with, with economists' current understanding of money? Um, uh, there's a lot wrong, I think. I mean, the simple answer is that I think actually most, uh, most um, uh, monetary economics and macroeconomics post-war essentially adopts the conventional understanding of money as I described it here. Money is modelled as a thing, as a medium of exchange. And the problem with that can be summarised by saying, you know, the, the qu a question like, you know, what should the monetary standard B does not even arise in that case. In the conventional history of money, which I described, there's no such thing as a question of what the monetary standard should be. If, if money is a thing, if we're going to use plastic water bottles as money, there's, there's no question of you know, what plastic water bottle means. It just means a plastic water bottle. That's that. If, on the other hand, one understands that money is a system of credit and clearing, and that um, one can manipulate the standard and that you know, uh, redistributes wealth and income and, and affects what people are doing, that's a whole different matter. This understanding of um, finance as a business of uh, credits and debts and um, of the importance, therefore, of creditworthiness and of liquidity, for example, in determining asset prices is well established in a different field of economics, which is finance, academic finance, practically. But as you will know, academic finance and economics, macroeconomics of the sort, uh, which is used in central banks you know, to guide monetary policy, diverged very significantly since the, since the Second World War. And that divergence, I think, has been a huge problem. It's, it's very esoteric. It won't be of interest to a lot of people here, but it's an enormous problem for economic policy. Worldwide, I mean, it's actually what we discovered during the crisis. So uh, your generation is going to correct this thing. So. Um, and then to, re to return to the, the first question, which was about the fact that um, the state, uh, you know, there's a very small part of the money supply, which is actually liabilities directly of the state. You know, the actual coins, when I take out five pound notes here, this is actually a liability of the Bank of England. It appears on their balance sheet. If you look at the balance sheet of the Bank of England, there is you know, part of the liability is notes and coins. But obviously, most of the money supply, most of our money, uh, does not appear as a liability on uh, the Bank of England's balance sheet. It appears as a liability of commercial banks. That's the 97% of the money supply you were talking about. Um, absolutely. This is precisely why 
it is so crucial that one is constantly alert to and preserves the integrity of this great monetary settlement uh, in which private banks are allowed to create money in the course of lending, which is what they do. They create a loan and thereby create a, a deposit, create money. And in return for that, right, they are regulated. That's the, I mean, that is the quid pro quo it is, as it exists today. But remember that even that 100% of the money supply we're describing does not include an awful lot of other types of liabilities which can be conjured up, um, which can also serve more or less as money. And that's what happened before the crisis with you know, all these innovations in so-called shadow banking. It wasn't money that you or I could use. It wasn't money that uh, the retail in the individual could use. This was sort of wholesale money which financial institutions could use. Um, and because of that and because it was innovative and because it wasn't well understood, and one of the reasons it wasn't well understood, I believe strongly and I argue in this book, is because the people who, were, who should have understood it, you know, the people in ministries of finance and central banks and so on, had an incorrect understanding of what money is. If you think of money as a thing, you don't begin to ask the question, well, are all those CDOs and ABSs and so on, could that be money? Of course it's not money. What are you talking about? You know, we know perfectly well what money is. Money is notes and coins and, you know, maybe the... So uh, that's exactly where the problem lies, and uh, I think you're right to, to bring it up. Peter, do you have a comment on that? Uh, I just want to say I'm, I'm not so convinced uh, <coughs> that they had an incorrect idea. I think the people who made a lot of money and, and operated in these ways you're talking about... <coughs> Even if they hadn't, even if they didn't articulate it, they certainly acted on a quite different idea. It was yes. just that they continued to persuade us that our money was yes. things in the bank and that they were safe. And I think they were yes. wrong about that. And they continued to persuade us that our house was value more had was worth more next year than it was last year, and that uh, and that meant that we were considerably we were groomed into accepting uh, uh, ways of behaving which need, as you say, to be severely regulated. Okay, more questions. Uh, right at the back there, and then uh, this man here. I have a feeling to tell us what the democratic control of uh, money would look like. Okay, thank you. What would a democratic mm -hmm. uh, control of money look like? And... Um, my question is around however you complexify our understanding of this social concept money. De facto, an awful lot of money has been transferred uh, from the rewards to work to rents, profit, wages, was it about 36% uh, prejudice of the latter in the 70s, now it's about 48%. Wouldn't it just be simple to say the rich must pay back when they've had their tax strike, they've had their tax go slow, which has uh, enabled various debts uh, to be built up to them instead? Um, do we really need to talk about democratisation? Do we, 
Do we not simply say we need some kind of that jubilee, write down, sterilization, um, transformation of that sort of mental debt that we've got uh, to them? And then maybe the um, uh, monetary economic system would start circulating around again rather than the squeeze middle, the squeeze bottom, and the squeeze not so far from the top. Peter, you've thought about debt a lot. Uh, yes, uh, I, I mean, um, I, I went to Barbados recently and I uh, was told there that, that, you know, there was a strong movement for reparations, the kind that, that you're talking about. Um, uh, the problem is, isn't it, that, that um, like, like uh, an African-American friend said to me once, I mean, the problem is that to have a revolution we need to burn down the distilleries and actually we all like whiskey too much. Uh, the, the problem is that we are very much in hock to the system that we have. And um, uh, to, to answer the other question about what democratic control of money would look like, I think people, um, uh, there, there really was a chance that people would discover um, that they had been misled. And that's the first step, I think, to people claiming some authority over the way things are done. But the, the signs are quite bad in that um, uh, the majority is not now the poor in our society, and therefore the majority tends to act in the interests of the people who, to whom we are in hock. Okay, um, Felix, two yes. issues. Uh, maybe I can. Maybe you won't mind if I take them both together because they're both sort of about um, you know the, the reform of money and the reform of the financial sector. I mean, the, the simplest answer to a very very good question over there. I mean, you know, come on, Felix, you waffle on about democratic control of money, but what do you really mean? That the really honest answer is that um, I can't tell you exactly what it would look like. Um, I can give you uh, the sort of um, the sort of preliminary ideas that, that I have. Um, the first is something which might sound rather boring and humble, but it, it comes to the question I was asked by this uh, gentleman from the LSE. Um, I think one thing it would look like would be if um, we the, the economics, which is the core of the way that uh, the policymakers think about our economy and how it works and think about how finance relates to macroeconomic outcomes. If this were improved over time by people like my friend here, uh, I think it would be a good thing. I think we'd have better macroeconomic policy. I think we'd have, um, I hope we'd have fewer crises and I think we'd be able to manage them better. We wouldn't, for example, have spent so much time thinking exclusively about inflation targeting prior to the crisis and we might have realized uh, that we were just brewing up problems elsewhere in the financial system. And speaking sort of about more radical stuff, uh, I think um, it's going to be, uh, it's inevitable that we're going to go through a lot of changes in the banking and financial system um, in the next few decades. And this is where I think actually Bitcoin, which I was disparaging at the beginning of my talk, uh, is probably quite an interesting development because, f 
for many years now, for many decades, it's been easy to see how a lot of what is done by the banking sector can actually be done by different kinds of institutions. So the part of what banks do, which is the part that they love to talk about to the public because it sounds socially very useful, it is socially very useful, the part which is we look after your savings and we find good and profitable and worthwhile uh, businesses to lend your savings to. This part, for many decades, has been able to be done by different kinds of institutions. Uh, for example, mutual funds and pension funds and so on. You know, I'm biased, I would say that that's the part of the industry that I work in. In other words, you don't have to go and deposit your money in a bank to see it put to productive use. You could go and put it in some sort of mutual fund and you know you decide what kinds of things you want. You might decide you want socially responsible investments maybe that you find a socially responsible investment fund and so on. But there is one crucial core part of the financial system which is extremely boring and not much talked about which cannot currently be done outside of the banking system and this is payments, the payment system. And as you would have understood from that story about the bankers in the 16th century. That is actually the origin of banking, and it's the, it's the crucial intrinsic part of what banks are. Um, and this is where I think potentially, not that I'm a great expert on you know, the technology and so on, but when I see people like Mark Andreessen, these big Silicon Valley gurus, you know, getting very excited about this distributed ledger technology which has been developed in the course of, of inventing Bitcoin, one can see that this is an area which now may come under intense competition from you know, new technology and perhaps actually payments can be done on a completely different way which is much more efficient, much cheaper and, uh, and so on. Um, so I think we will see a, very, you know, a lot of very dramatic differences in the way that the financial system is structured and they may allow for more democratic control in the sense that, for example, we may find, I'll paint a picture for you, it may, may not exist. In 10 years' time, it may be that you simply have a lot of mutual funds that do the collecting of the savings and the investing. Uh, the payment system is some Bitcoin-like uh, internet-based payment system, and we will have accounts at the Bank of England um, you know, for our current account purposes. In other <coughs> words, you don't need any of the commercial banks anymore. Um, now, if that were the case, there would be a much more direct link between monetary policy and you and me and our money. Obviously, it would be directly by the Bank of England. And um, uh, I wonder if we'd then put up with the current system of governance for the Bank of England um, in that case. Um, I'm afraid I've been asked to bring this uh, evening to a close at 7.45 and it's, it's past that already and I know many people here have rather difficult journeys to, to uh, begin as they leave here. Um, so I'm afraid we're going to have to bring it to a close there. Uh, I'd like to thank you very much for coming this evening but I'd particularly on your behalf like to thank both um, Peter and uh, Felix for their presentations this evening. Peter said that there's been a lot of groomed thinking and therefore a lot of groomed expectation. And we need people, I think, like Felix to challenge conventional histories, uh, to prick quite a few bubbles that are floating around. And uh, as I said at the beginning, the review said that he was doing that uh, in an intelligent, stimulating and accessible way. 
and I think you've proved that to us this evening. So thank you very much indeed. For, for